to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. Uh, today we have a guest uh, for this wonderful, it's the first viewing for him. Ian, why don't you introduce yourself and where you're from and your podcast? Why don't you uh, give yourself a little plug here? Oh, okay. Uh, well, I'm Ian Mungal. Uh I have a podcast. I do it with my brother. It's called Cine Siblings. It's basically we have fun talking about movies we love right now. And we also do a top five draft, which is kind of relevant to the film we're talking about. Yeah, I saw that on the uh, your Twitter and I was like, oh, this is perfect. And this <laughs> is the first time you've seen High Fidelity. It is. It's one of those movies that came out at a weird time, I guess. I mean, year 2000, I'm 11 years old, and this is a yeah, rated yeah. R film. And while my parents did make questionable uh, decisions on what they allowed us to watch, <laughs> this was not one that I, that I came across. So We were def- definitely a little bit older when this came out. We were about, what, 18 years old, 17? Uh, uh, yeah. Around that. Yeah. Uh, and Chris, this is your choice this week, because you're choosing the old films that we're doing. Why did you choose High Fidelity? Well, to be honest... Uh, there were you know i was doing the search like i usually do what's new to streaming so high fidelity was on hulu for quite a while it's making the switch over this month as of yesterday november 1st to uh be exclusive to hbo max and i don't know i was thinking that uh i mean i like picking movies where it's like you know a big nice round number anniversary and this is the yeah, 20th yeah. anniversary this year of high fidelity but also it was one of those movies that stuck out stood out like a sore thumb to me when uh asking this question like we kind of asked ourselves with the species episode uh yeah. recently of you know how we viewed films as you know preteens and teenagers uh especially as male <laughs> preteens and teenagers yeah around that time late 90s early 2000s versus today and i i i felt like i needed it needed a reckoning it needed uh this a, yeah <laughs> a 2020 this a, look <laughs> this is a big one and to, before we dive into the film i have to say that um i reread this book on a whim it was one of my favorite books uh back when i was a teenager probably when i was like 19 uh, i decided and i have not read a novel in forever uh despite like having my master's in literature i just stopped reading novels for like a decade <laughs> and then like i for some reason this was the novel that i chose to reach to start reading again and it was quite the experience um it is yeah well i think we'll dive into the film what it's all about well what is it all about chris give us kind of the synopsis of this film yeah someone so, hasn't seen it well here's the thing is i mean even in in my heyday watching this movie over and over again on my blockbuster previously viewed VHS uh, <laughs> as a freshman in college. Uh, it was very much that kind of movie where it's like, I don't really know what it's about other than it's the story of a guy who owns a record store and his trials and tribulations in the area of love. And it feels like so amorphous, especially now rewatching it uh, and feeling like I have a better grasp on like what a film's script should be to feel like cohesive and tangible. And now uh, it still comes across that way. So the, the plot, just generally speaking, if you Google the synopsis, it says Rob Gordon is the owner of a failing record store in Chicago where he sells music the old fashioned way on vinyl. That's hilarious in 2020, by the way. Although they have an encyclopedic yeah. knowledge of pop music and are consumed by the music scene, it's of no help to Rob, whose needle skips the love group when his longtime girlfriend, Laura, walks out on him. 
As he examines his failed attempts at romance and happiness, the process finds him being dragged, kicking and screaming into adulthood. So is this, I think that's my opening question to both of you. Is yeah. this the genesis of the man-child genre that was popularized by Judd Apatow well into the 2000s? Oh my God. That's maybe, such a heavy maybe, question. Maybe. <laughs> I, I, I'm not... It's it's possible. I mean, it's... Uh... There's something in the release notes that I have. I forget what it is. It's down there somewhere. But talking about sort of why this film is still viewed as like important by a lot of people. And I think, yeah, there is something there where it, I think this is resolutely a Generation X film. Uh, it, it's a film about people in their mid 30s during this time period. And I, when did the book come out? Was it like a, a 95? 95. OK, so that makes perfect sense. So born in essentially the main character is 35 years old, born in 1960, like right in that Gen X sort of time span. Um, and I think, yeah, there definitely is a lot of parallels between um, High Fidelity and John Cusack's character in something like you'd see in like Knocked Up even. Like what when was that? Seven years later, essentially. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of that stuff in the mid 2000s, Wedding Crashers, maybe a little bit. Uh, all the Judd Apatow stuff is essentially an example of that where, yeah, people are three in their thirties and they still act like they're little like teenagers emotionally perhaps. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's, there is, uh, you know, I think we're going to kind of beat up the film a bit. I, I get that feeling on this, <laughs> this, this episode. Uh, I have a lot to say about that, but I do think this, do, it is kind of like um, an important film for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, because it does. And I remember this when I read the book for the first time, you know, as an 18 year old music nerd used to hang out at exclusive company, which is like an independent record store where we, me and Chris grew up. Um, it was, I think, the first time where I had heard that voice of this obsessive music nerd who was, you know, extremely narcissistic. Oh, they don't realize that at the time. Right. Um, kind of just I don't know his perspective of the world. I had never come across this before like that resolute nerdy um music snob uh who's kind of a nerd and on the out feels like he's always on the outside uh i feel like there is something there like a special voice i don't know Ian, did you pick that up because this is the first time you've seen it did this character seem to you like somebody that you've met before or do you feel like like there's an overlap with um you know stuff in your life or did it felt really foreign well as a like a, a former musician i played in, in bands and stuff i'd definitely have met this type of person and that's <laughs> as soon as they introduce you to the three guys that work at the record shop i'm immediately go like these people are real i mean they're yeah, definitely totally. caricature they're caricatures yeah. of real people at least and i mean i've worked at a very niche shop at it's like a nerd gaming shop sort of thing yeah, like magic the totally. gathering and all that yeah, stuff yeah. and there are very, very similar types of people that just come in and it quotation marks work there uh, yeah, and exactly. don't, not really work there. Uh, yeah. And so these are, yeah, these are definitely real types of people that are obsessive about music. And I definitely have had some friends that are obsessive about music, not maybe not to the, this extent where they have shelves on shelves of vinyl in their house which take. back in 2000 was like was huh. weird right. that would I be mean, a weird thing like I, now it's you know i have vinyl too but like yeah i have vinyl as well so but i didn't the thing is i didn't start collecting vinyl until like probably the mid 2000s 
and like having right. a vinyl shop in the in like mid 90s and early 2000s it's definitely definitely that's niche right like that's kind of its own thing um all right guess who made this movie who is this what is this all about yeah like, who, this is this is where it kind of falls apart for me honestly because <laughs> it because everything you right guys are saying <laughs> like the conception like it's clear why i was drawn to it because it was the only yeah. movie like that at least that was widely available um at the time and yet it's so strange to really look at it with a clear wiser eye 20 years later and see okay so it's produced by working title films uh in conjunction with touchstone pictures so like essentially you've it's a disney Disney disney-fied version of the indie record store geek's life right okay so uh stephen freer's directed it and uh, the team of Steve Pink, John Cusack, and uh, Vincent, uh, or what's his name, Victor DeVincentes? Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So these three guys had been uh, working together for a number of years at this point. They grew up. They went to high school together. They ended up finally making Gross Point Blank together in 97. And then uh, somehow uh, the producers, Joe Roth and Tim Bevins, get... Uh, them hooked up with Frears, who had basically already planned to adapt it. Uh, Frears being British, along with Hornby, um, with a script by Steve Rosenberg, the guy who um, wrote uh, Con Air, Disturbing Behavior, and had a script that was that sold for a lot of money just the year before, Gone in sixty Seconds. Yeah, um, okay. And so it seemed like they were very much aiming for like this across the pond, universal hit. But I think there was this strange in my opinion anyways misstep in then co- ultimately choosing to collaborate with uh the new crime productions guys that was cusack and his best basically two best friends because then you yeah. get this weird muddled voice of like the stately freers like there's a great uh um anecdote of him basically as a 50 something year old director uh, lamenting about being too old to direct this movie <laughs> and he had made the grifters which was oscar nominated and then had two really big bombs in the 90s with the dustin hoffman sappy drama hero and the uh frankenstein reimagining mary riley and he was kind of on the downslope and so then it's it's one of those like hollywood cocktails of uh strange mix-up and rosenberg's script which he had adapted to be set in boston rather than chicago was essentially ignored and uh Cusack and his two buds um, rewrote it from scratch and it just feels like it was a really messy process Um, that's uh, ultimately what happened but I'm curious did you guys feel that while you were watching it did it feel messy well personally I yeah it does feel messy and like I don't I haven't read the book and y'all I guess y'all have but it's this sort of fourth wall breaking self-narration that doesn't lend itself particularly well to film in the first place because it seems lazy in my opinion and i think y'all have kind of talked about that in uh when y'all talked about the devil all the time but that's just it just feels like they could have written it with more show don't tell sort of things in mind like i would rather him have these conversations you know with the the women in his life instead Mm. of actually talking up to me the audience and i I don't is the book like that as well 
Yeah, the books, it's constantly breaking the fourth wall. And it's funny that you bring that up because I, I definitely, I kind of like the way they do it in the film because it, it is, I don't know, there's not a lot of ways you can film that. It, I was watching an interview with the author, Nick Hornby, about a year after the movie came out. He was on Conan O'Brien. And one of the things he said explicitly was that, like, this was a terrible idea to try and make this movie <laughs> yeah. because it's like an unfilmable book. It'd be like filming, like, Sound in the Fury and not that similar levels of literature. But it, it's a very difficult narrative that works well. And I will say, when I reread the book, that part of it works incredibly well hmm. because it brings you right into that character's perspective immediately. Um, but in a film, it, it, it plays very... And one of the things that I think uh, in terms of its messiness, it it does, I think, the fourth wall breaking to me, it does it pretty well. But then it also tries to kind of push in this more traditional narrative instead of going like full po postmodern and just like throwing this spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks is like, almost like an experimental kind of film, which they did not do. Obviously, uh, they tried to kind of uh, be in no man's land where narratively they wanted it to be very traditional with these traditional beats, but kind of presented in a non-traditional way. And I think that to me is where a lot of the, the becomes very muddled uh, and staticky. It's like, what is, what are you really trying to say here? It kind of oscillates back and forth. Um, I, I also, I do have to point out that um, the transition of this film or translation, I should say of this film from England to yeah. Chicago is a really big deal and yeah. i think there's a lot of cultural stuff in the book that really if you're like really into british music and stuff you it it rings really true and you connect with it um there's some of that in the movie and it sort of works but i think that that, that cultural translation that happens is also pretty pop problematic especially when it comes to relationships um because I, you know, you think that men and women are somewhat similar throughout the world. Oh, it's the UK, the United States. How different can it be? Well, it's super different. And like doing what he's doing at his age as a British man, it just feels very different than an American doing it. So I think we have to sort of I wanted to point that out that like that translation, I think, is also where this film. It's another barrier to success. There's a lot of barriers here. Um, and so as much as like we I don't know, we kind of are going to shit on the film a bit. I feel like we already are. Right. Um, right. <laughs> It, it there's a lot here that was difficult uh the book was almost very hard to film they decided to, to move it across to a completely different culture essentially uh and so i think you know those those are things we kind of want to point out as sort of like yeah this wasn't the easiest thing in the world to, to pull off i also want to note that steve rosenberg uh um the two other writers pink and whatever his name is well, i can't figure his name uh they hate rosenberg because they think rosenberg <laughs> stole credit for it essentially yes, yes. it's like the big thing um, he basically used like a wga loophole to get a credit right Yikes. yeah um but yeah so okay like uh, with well, the book and stuff like that like so oh, go ahead yeah so the uh as we're talking while we're on the subject of translation from book to screen have you guys watched yeah. the hulu series with zoe kravitz you know i have yeah yes. i've watched i haven't finished it but i've watched probably the first half and i kind of love it so um, that was my day yesterday i was like well i'm gonna do this movie about a book i'm gonna see both you know iterations of it uh did you like it i well i loved it way more than i liked this movie for sure <laughs> and i think it i can i'll talk about it later but yeah i just wanted to see if you guys had uh had watched that as well 
Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's um yeah, the the series is interesting. It's a lot obviously a totally different medium doing a limited series than a than a film. But the film is just like it's they got to stuff in so much stuff so quickly. Right. Uh every scene, they like they cut a lot of scenes. Um there's a lot of great deleted scenes from High Fidelity that you can catch on on YouTube. Uh and so you do miss a lot. Um but that's whenever you're trying to translate a novel to a film, has that I mean, does that often and in success i don't know well, chris what do you think i did want to mention that like especially with the the and they knew that they were taking a gamble right with that breaking the fourth wall thing uh because yeah. basically the the multiple previous drafts of the script was going to just simply be voiceover which is its own problem like we mentioned on the devil all the time episode that you referenced ian and i'm sure that that's been talked to death uh, and so they they at least knew they wanted to do something different. And for that, like warts and all, like John Cusack, uh, I have a lot of mixed feelings on the guy. But one of the things that he does well is he, in this movie especially, because he kind of sleptwalked through a lot of uh, uh, other movies, both before and after this one. His but he's whole really, career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> harsh, um, harsh. But harsh I do feel like he's at least trying. It's I can tell that he cares here, and that he's really giving yeah. it all, just like mm-hmm. Jack Black is. I, I don't I know. disagree. No? I think he's completely. You think he's phoning it in? I think no, maybe not phoning it in, but I don't like. I don't like his performance. I don't like him as a character. I, and then I look through his IMDb credits, and I'm like, I don't particularly like him at all (laughs) yeah no it's totally fair i think it was more just i think because of the um the notion of the part that got through to me is that he clearly is the kind of guy that in his own personal life and it's i mean it still remains true today that he's not he's never settled down he's never really been the kind of person to uh to to marry to uh have be monogamous and so it seems like that part of like the the psychic break in his ability to uh really both be a good person and that's the other part that's tricky with the movie is that you really don't like rob unlike zoe kravitz's performance in the series you you do like her you do like her her. right and that i mean that 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 comes i think to the to the the zenith of the problem which is that or nadir if you want of this absolute breakdown in the you know overarching question of does this movie does the script and maybe you could also argue john cusack's performance did they know that he's unlikable do they care that he's unlikable do they want him to be unlikable it's funny you say that because i watched another video essay on youtube this is what i do with my time obviously and i read the comments (laughs) uh and uh somebody was like so it was breaking the fourth wall was the the essay thing video essay and it was not very well done but whatever i'm not gonna trash the person who did it um underneath the comments somebody was sort of like there was an argument going on with this exact question and i actually had a conversation with a friend about this is like is this movie ironic in the sense that like it's making rob to be this terrible person and like that's the irony of it. It's like criticizing the man child and the emotionally maladapted uh, male. Is that how it's happening? Is there a level of irony? I would say the answer answer is absolutely. I would say no. Right. That like they're presenting it as sort of like a valid way to live your life, not like it's promoting it, but like this is how some men are. This is what men sometimes do. Um, 
I did not get any ironic detachment or distance with this movie at all that it was criticizing the main character. I don't know. Am I wrong in, in saying that? Is there some level of irony here that I'm missing? I I think, I mean, it's pretty on the nose, right? I mean, guys yeah. do do this. I mean, I've been yeah. in numerous. I mean, this movie spoke to me. I mean, we, when you guys asked me to be on this podcast, I was like, okay, let me look, you know, I'm, I know of the movie. Let me look, read about it. And I was like, oh, this seems this speaks to me since I've been through many breakups and all that. So yeah, I just don't think he's the one for the, for this, I guess. Like I don't John know. Cusick as like the, an actor or like, um, yeah, I don't, the, I don't know what it was exactly. The character I'm like, yeah, you can, I've self-sabotaged relationships. Sure. And that's what the movie is yeah. about him self-sabotaging all of his relationships over and over again over and over and over again and blaming it on the women yeah and i mean i've been there personally and i mean so i definitely it speaks to me on some level that the story itself and i just think that it's not ironic it's not coy or cute or charming in any sort of way so yeah and maybe that's that's just john cusack's performance that just rubbed me the wrong way It's almost like he inhabits the character too well and it just sort of, he's too comfortable in it and he, it almost seems too authentic. Like I, I get like, I kind of, what was Chris was saying was before about him and his personal life that always trend, you know, um, comes across in the characters that you play. Um, it, it does kind of feel like he is Rob on some level. And I think that that hurt, I don't know, not maybe it hurts the film. It just, it sends a message that's sort of like, this is how men can act. Uh, this is what happens. Uh, and, and by the end, he comes around a little bit and obviously finds out, oh, this is important. But I actually had a conversation uh, with a friend about that part of the movie. And she essentially said that, like, oh, he does the bare minimum. Right. He does the he, he... absolute bare minimum here <laughs> to be a decent boyfriend, husband, partner, whatever you want to call it. And like that's supposed to be the denouement or the resolution of this story. Um <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things. I I thought the thing that I think this movie does very well, and I think this goes back to the book and to the production who's involved in the the script, is that it starts out incredibly strong. I think the first 20 minutes here are are actually really, really good. But once you hit that 20, 30 minute mark, it starts to really list. And you can't really tell which way it's going um was there a way to sort of correct this film or or is it is it kind of like doomed from the start that's one of the questions we always have about movies that kind of don't end up where we think they should all right is this thing doomed it's two hours long (laughs) it's two hours of breakup stories which is i mean yeah you can make a television show but two hours if you're telling five breakup stories like doesn't give Mm -hmm. you enough time to really soak in these relationships to even care about them yeah so doomed from the start in my opinion yeah and i mean going back to something you said earlier ian about uh you know the 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 female characters perspectives i think that's also true for the male characters perspectives of the supporting cast is that they're trying to pull off this tricky feat of it being an ensemble movie but us constantly coming back to what's going on in john cusack's head and then on top of that you've got the issue of what dan was saying where he basically has like the the a blip on a radar uh, version of character development by the end of the movie 
And so it feels it feels lifeless. It feels like there's no depth or breadth in it. And it's just basically a lot of talking with like a couple good zingers uh, to keep you entertained and Jack Black's volume. <laughs> just Jack Black being Jack Black. Exactly. But what do we think about? I, I We got to talk about Jack Black a little bit in, yes. in this. I, I think that um, and I, I got to find the the quote where he basically talks about like how he, he, he what did he say um the only time i went all the fucking way is yeah when he ta- sort of talks about this movie uh and he talks about how people come uh come up to him a lot and say oh man this is like the best performance ever uh i wouldn't necessarily disagree with that i think that jack black is pretty wonderful in this movie um is he annoying yeah but that's kind of who he is um and is he playing a character that's really kind of close to his actual personality yeah uh but that ends up making for good acting usually um and I don't know, I think to me, uh, without Jack Black in this movie, it would be pretty, might be unwatchable. It might be kind of like Drek hmm. if Jack Black is not there to sort of, I don't know, lighten the mood a bit or just make it a more frivolous, if that makes sense. I don't know. What do you guys think about Jack Black in this? Okay, I mean, so I think. Go ahead for first. Ian. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, being my first watch through, I mean, I've from familiar with jack black this is one of his like really breakout roles where they let him be himself right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so when i see it i'm just going okay it's just jack black sure yeah that makes sense yeah yeah and i think for this caricature yeah for for us it was definitely uh a different story especially being that you know unbridled emotion of a you know 17 18 year old watching this movie uh and i think that one thing i noticed watching it back um there are some quiet character moments general i can't think of a single one with rob actually but these small moments in the movie that still resonate with me and i remember resonating with me uh when i was first obsessed with the film and the two that come to mind are the time where the the guy comes in to ask jack black about being in a band with him um, yeah, where he, you, mm-hmm. the, Black is as restrained as he perhaps has ever been on film. Uh, yeah, and then the other one being when we find out that Dick Todd Luiso's character. By the way, what happened to this guy? I love him. Um, yeah, he's good. He's good. Uh, but when his character has that sweet interaction with the girl about the Green Day song, and it's like one of the only examples, one of the things that like I kept cringing at watching it uh, again in 2020 is every other interaction that Black's character or Cusack's character has with a woman about music, except for this one, where it actually feels like sweet and authentic and there's, you know, it's flirty, but it's also not like uh, mansplaining. And oh, that, that brings mm. up like a huge. Right. <laughs> so I, that, that, that is what I'm curious to hear your guys' take on, because ultimately it's a movie about breakups, but it's also obviously about music. And I mean, does Hornby's kind of thesis come through here that, I mean, he's kind of said this in numerous interviews, but I don't know if Cusack and his buddies that wrote the script a thousand times really got to the heart of it, of these guys that are obsessed with the, an art form that is all about like emotional truth and honesty, and yet are completely in it, unable to be emotionally truthful and honest with themselves or their partners. Yeah, it's that's a, I mean a huge part of this whole thing and I I find this to be very true growing up as like a music nerd is that like 
especially as a dude where emotions are not exactly your your first language and listening to music and talking about music especially with other guys is a way to talk about emotional stuff and like being obsessed with like i don't know who were you obsessed with in high school i don't even i can't remember what's a band like Me? jimmy world or something that's more jimmy college. world or pavement yeah <laughs> jimmy world pavement let's say jimmy world which is you know essentially I'm in a whole a, a different world, world i guess yeah <laughs> give us a couple names ian yeah give us a couple of, uh, uh we're like alexis on fire oh, oh yeah, yeah. You know alexis right. on fire. It's under oath canada <laughs> Yeah, yeah, under oath. I love under oath. Um, oh. uh, like that's a way to talk about things you can't either can't face or is not maybe socially acceptable in your in group to talk about. You can talk about the new Jimmy World song or talk about the new under oath, and it's a way to connect with people on an emotional uh, level that feels comfortable. Um, but where, where this movie, I think, falls short is that it really gets the snob part of music nerds right, because a lot of people who are super into vinyl and stuff like that, I think if people are like super into jazz or something, uh, they <laughs> have like this sort of like downward glance at other people because it's an in-group, in-group, out-group thing. That's what's happening. I'm in the in-group. I know these things. You don't. So get away because I want to be safe. Right. He gets that right. And the movie gets that right. But what he doesn't really get is like the feeling of going to uh, a show with people um, in that sort of community that develops around a band or an album or a song. He doesn't seem to connect in the movie. It doesn't happen almost at all. There's that one scene you talk about the Green Day thing, but that's an integral part of being a lover of music is that community and connection that you get. And I think that's mostly missing from the movie. I think uh, there's that one scene where he's like, I'm about to sell five, oh, five God. copies of the band EP. Uh, yeah. Piece. yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's, it's so surface level, but there, there is nothing quite like sharing something you love oh, with yeah. some, somebody else, especially music, especially a song, especially yeah. an album or a movie. But, uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's euphoric, I found, especially yeah, when you're younger. It's almost like you're just you feel like you're alone and then you find other people that are into the same art that you're into. And it's a really uh, revelatory experience, I find. Yeah, uh, all, and it, almost all the characters in this are super abrasive with their sharing of their love for music. Well, I'm curious now that you guys bring this up uh, and I, I haven't watched it in a number of years, but we're talking about the year 2000 when High Fidelity came out, which was also the year of another uh, music obsession movie almost famous does that movie hold uh, up does that continue this does this do a better job at kind of showing the shared connection of musical ex- obsession i haven't seen that it's movie in tw- 15 years <laughs> yeah same well i think almost famous i probably watched like i don't know, like five years ago probably uh it used to be like one of my favorite films i think what almost famous gets right is the uh, the mass communal experience of music mm-hmm. like not the, partly the celebrity but sort of the the magic or majesty of being in a rock band and that sort of mythology that surrounds rock in a band like led zeppelin like there's something very powerful and mysterious about that i think almost famous gets that right kind of looking deeper into that whereas high fidelity is more about you know, if that's about the mass, it's about the smaller group of the individual and their obsession with music and how they connect with it. Um, 
I don't know. It just when I think about music obsessed people, uh, I almost never think about the snobs because those people aren't really all that important and they're annoying and you don't really want to have them in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always think about sort of the people that are just really enthusiastic about the same music that I'm into and connecting about it and getting excited about it. To me, that's the 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 meat or core of being a music uh, obsessive right. uh, is that communal joy uh, in music. I just I don't know. I mean, do you guys I feel like the one of the biggest problems with this film to me and sort of the messaging, the characters is, yes, those people do exist. But like you kind of get rid of those people. I feel like sometimes in your life when you're <laughs> we, sort of like, we don't want to, we don't want to spend yeah. a two hour movie with those people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I remember people like in high school, I won't name names, but I, I know Chris Polly here can, uh, can think of one or two <laughs> that were like this. And it was sort of like, I would talk about, I remember there was this guy, uh, I wanted to name his name, but I can't name his name. Uh, I went, he, he asked me, this is at a lunch deal. He asked me, what are your five favorite bands? And I went through each one. And after each one, he said, they suck. <laughs> and yeah, I know exactly. That's who you're so perfect. About. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. And, and so like, that was just sort of like, well, those types of people in music, I get rid of, I've excised those people from my life. I have nothing to do with them. Um, and that's these people in this movie. It like, is. I don't, I would not be friends with Jack Black or Dick or Rob in this yeah. movie because they kind of suck. Right. They're not fun people or interesting people at all. Um, I mean, and they might be interesting. They might have good taste. You might like get a record recommendation, but you don't want to hang out with them and have a beer. You know yeah. what I mean? And there's that's there's this whole other layer of the movie is you talk about the downward glance. It's not that's not only happening with the record store uh, workers and everybody else outside or that comes into the record store, but it's also with Rob as the protagonist and then Dick and uh, Jack Black's character below him, right? And that really like rubbed me the wrong way. You mentioned about how like after that 20 minute mark, essentially after the montage of the top five breakups, uh, then we really, you know, start to get to know our protagonist. And that was like, especially on my rewatch yesterday, it was that moment when he like is both insulting the Bell and Sebastian song that Dick has chosen as well as insulting the mixtape that Jack Black's character has brought up, brought in. And it's like, do you, I don't, this guy does not like anybody. So why, why do I want to commit to this time with him? Unless the film is going to be wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and kind of skewer its protagonist and turn him but, into somebody that we, that we should hate, but it doesn't, it's trying but to, it doesn't at all. Yeah. It does trying to make us and I think, side with him. One of the interesting things to you talk about, like when it was released and sort of like talking about maybe the reception of this film in general, um, in that same Conan O'Brien interview uh, with Nick Hornby, the author, about a year after the film came out, uh, Conan O'Brien's like, oh, I love this film. This film was one of the best films I've seen <laughs> in a long time. And he wasn't kidding. You could tell he was being authentic, that he really loved the movie and critics love the movie. You know, 91% in Rotten Tomatoes, a 76 score, which is very high. Uh, top critics 87 percent metacritic said a 79 anything in, uh, close to 80 on metacritic is fantastic mm-hmm. uh, audience score of a 90 percent that's rt rotten tomato audience score so you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt letterbox was also high 74 on letterbox um uh, but the cinema score when it came out which would have been the friday night it came out that first audience the 7 p.m showing they get pulled they give it a c plus which is terrible right um so, like, looking at these responses, it's a weird... Critics seem to really like the movie, which makes sense. 
because a lot of art critics and film critics <laughs> critic. might fall into that Rob category uh, of kind of, you know, being super into an art form, maybe a little bit of an outsider because of that, uh, a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. Okay, I, I like this character. I like this group of people. Um, but there, are all, there also is a very strong audience love for this film. And it comes back when people were talking about the oral history and the actors and stuff about how this is the movie that comes up most often and with when people walk up to them fans like oh man i loved you in high fidelity why do you think there is this staying power to the movie after 20 years now where you know we saw it when we were 17 18 it obviously hit a home run with us um why are people keep coming coming back to it younger people um connecting with this film uh throughout the years what do you guys think i maybe it's just because they love Jack Black's comedic performance. I, I'm not <laughs> sure why they keep coming back to this. Um, I mean, I probably won't watch it ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. And I watched it a lot as a teenager. So I think that, uh, I mean, nostalgia is strong, right? Uh, as we've seen time and time again with Hollywood. But I do think it's interesting that, like, especially something like Letterboxd, where uh yeah it's it's yeah it is film snobs uh i i love totally i love the app but i love those people yeah it's yeah it's tough to kind of uh look away i think there's two key quotes um that i wanted to share with you guys that kind of show the 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 yin and yang so to speak of uh Mm -hmm. the staying power of this movie um one from ebert in the throes of it uh clearly i mean a critic's critic but also you know always attempting to be a populist especially i think during this time period during the, yeah. during the waning days of uh, the tv show with cisco in its unforced whimsical quirky obsessive way ebert writes high fidelity is a comedy about real people in real lives the movie looks like it was easy to make but it must not have been because movies this wry and likable hardly ever get made and i think that really is an interesting ebert quote considering how he how much he was known for both skewering uh high profile Hollywood comedies, uh, Deuce Bigelow, you know, th- things along that line. Uh, <laughs> but Deuce also, <laughs> but also how uh, prone he was to kind of looking over in what a lot of other people would see as obvious flaws of the movie, simply because it reflects something resonant with him. Uh, and that I think is coupled. You could couple that with uh, Amy Amy Tobin's Village Voice review which stated it may seem perverse to fault a movie for being too accurate, but when surface accuracy is coupled with tunnel vision about self and society, the result is a wee bit irritating. And I think it's important here to look at a, a a woman critics point of view here because it, it it becomes so clear that the navel gazing that's going on in this movie, both in the script and in the execution is something that is probably honestly a lot easier to overlook as a guy and especially a guy who himself is a snob um, and maybe even especially a guy that's younger. And that brings me up to one question that I meant to bring up earlier that I, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on. How old is Rob in this movie? How old is his character? He's 35 in the he, book. In the book, he's 35. Is, is that what yeah. we're kind of gleaning from uh, the, the film adaptation? I guess. I would say like 30-something. Right. Or maybe a little bit younger. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I think he's probably in mid thirties. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that's what I gathered anyway. And I think, and I think that's kind of ultimately for me anyways, what it gets the heart at. Cause like I'm in my mid thirties now and 
it it really horrifies me to to see a protagonist act like this in his mid thirties, and <laughs> we're supposed to you know care about him and empathize with him. Uh, that might be a Gen X thing, though. I mean, to me, like the, the way he's <laughs> acting, it seems like maybe like if you're a millennial or whatever, I could see someone in like their late twenties acting this way, like twenty eight, twenty nine, right. and that's what I was hoping. Um, for. <laughs> yeah, like it kind of feels maybe a little bit like that. Like I definitely was much more of a jerk when I was twenty seven or whatever. Same. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I do I think the one the Gen X element really there's something there where they, it does kind of feel like his character is um, like a paradigm of being a man in that time period. So I don't want to like completely fault it as sort of just being irritating and kind of annoying and a man child thing, which is all probably true. Uh, but there is something about that, that time period of that generation and the stuff that they were going through and the questioning that they were having about their lives and about one of the things that sticks out to me here is that he owns a record shop in his mid thirties. That's a pretty awesome thing to do. Yeah. Like yeah. I wish that I could quit my corporate, <laughs> like, you know, whatever I'm doing right now um, and do that. I, you know, like there's something, and I feel like with the gen X people, there was that pull towards kind of doing your dream thing. And it was very, I felt much more black and white back then. Like you were either in the corporate world or you absolutely were not. Whereas now it all mixes up. It's all like a stirring pot. We don't, what is selling out now? Does selling out even exist now? (laughs) You know, when you think about back then, that was a big deal, like becoming a lawyer or, you know, working for a big, huge corporation. Now it's like people don't even bat an eye at it. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that element's important to just sort of think about it in the historical context and generational context that like there might be a little bit more here than we're than we're suggesting about sort of the importance of his character and what he's doing. Um, but I don't know, Ian, what you know, let's let's wrap this thing up. What do we what are our parting thoughts about high fidelity? I, I'll start. Uh, I'll toss my hat in the ring first. Uh, I think that it is back to what I was saying, kind of an historical document. Uh, as a film in and of itself, it's not very good. Um, I think the book is extremely prob- problematic. I think it was a decent attempt to to put that onto screen here in a two-hour movie. Very, very tough job to do. I don't think they were entirely successful across the board. Uh, but if, if you remove the context of where this story is from and it's a, uh, you just view it as a film in and of itself, uh, I think it, it's not very good. Um, but it is good to sort of view it as like, well, this is kind of what Gen X, Gen X people were talking about. This is what they were expressing emotionally about their lives back then. Uh, and it's also great because of Jack Black, I think, <laughs> and like outside of that. And some of the musical references are amazing, like that beta band three EP thing. Like that's a very like pinpoint time in 2000 when that would be cool and interesting. And like uh, but a, outside a year of that, later they 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 opened for Radiohead and sold out tours worldwide. Yeah, I was there, man. You were yeah, there. Yeah, we were, we were there. Uh, <laughs> um, what do you guys think? What are your started closing thoughts on High Fidelity? Well, I think it's movie is way too long for what it is, and <laughs> I mean it could be sort of understandable if we were actually invested in any of the relationships that affected him, which I think that's the problem of the movie for me. I, I mean, I'm extremely fascinated by the concept with, uh, you know, relationships and how they shape people's lives and how they affect people's lives. And, 
I think more time should be spent here instead of all the needless, in my opinion, fourth wall breaks and narration. Yeah. Uh, and I think point. the source material itself probably leads it lends itself better to a television series, which we got on Hulu, yeah. which they subsequently canceled, even though that I thought it was great. Yeah. And I think it's a decent film. I mean, definitely a fascinating premise, uh, but it, it's dragging length and characters that while believable, uh, I seem to like less and less as the film progressed. And like, like I said earlier, why should we care about this guy? Why should we yeah. care about his relationship with Laura when she isn't particularly interesting or likable either? And I find, I still find myself saying that he doesn't deserve her. Yeah. And <laughs> that's how bad he is. <laughs> I, I get, I get that this is a story about how men purposefully sabotage their relationships because they fantasize about being with other women. And I get it. I've been there, but I don't like Rob. I don't. <laughs> and in this story, and maybe you're not supposed to, I mean, but honestly, I don't find him charming. And why I asked myself at the end of the movie, like, why should I care? And yeah. I also want to talk about the film's treatment of women is pretty shitty too. Oh, it's horrific. I and mean, that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> is there a single, I, I and I, I went through all the relationships. Is there a single relationship where he doesn't feel like he's being like cuckled? Oh, right. Does uh, any relationship end where he doesn't get, the woman doesn't go to another man. Right. Or is involved. Yeah. In, there, I think there's one. It happens in every single one. And oh, I was yeah. like, is this the first incel movie? <laughs> oh, God. I, I joke. I joke. But I kind of don't. <laughs> don't joke. bring that up at the 45 minute mark, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I brought it up. It has to be said that this. No, I yeah. had all these notes about it. All these notes about him. Yes. Sort of every no. relationship is the woman going to another man. I was like, Hornby, come on, buddy. Yeah. And if you look at dudes look at all the creators of this film they're all they're all men right exactly. oh it's all dudes it's yeah, all dudes. this is definitely yeah. a sausage fest um chris what do you think what are your closing uh, thoughts on this so i mean i uh, so as i had the film on i was honestly not only just like dreading each subsequent minute but also <laughs> uh when we got to the end um i literally had to rewind the ending like monologue like three times because I'm because I kept asking myself, is his character saying nothing for a <laughs> final conclusion in this like heart to heart? Look at the camera, fourth wall breaking thing. Um, and yeah, like essentially, I think that's that's the biggest takeaway I get is his final words. I'm going to paraphrase, but are essentially like making a mixtape is hard. It's got lots of rules, but I know how to make her happy. Finally. <laughs> it's so like obscenely undercooked and just shapeless and there's so much that could have been done and i think that's where a lot of the frustration stems from is like i i i I hate how much it didn't do and it chose to replace all that with essentially just you know a good soundtrack and uh horrible people and yeah, going yeah. And, and especially with like Laura's character, I mean, she's recovering from the death of her father. And then all of a sudden she's like planning a release show for this new band. And it, and we knew basically nothing about her other than like, she's a lawyer and she dresses different than she used to. And, and her haircut's awful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's just uh, I, uh, no more pink yeah. hair for her. Um, 
Yeah, it's a it's uh it is a, a a rocky ride. I think this film, but it's worth checking out, especially if you're into music and you've never seen it before. Just dive into it and, and see what you think. It is a time capsule. I think you're right. It is yeah. absolutely a time capsule. If you were not, you know, of age back then, you kind of want to know what being a music nerd was like in the year 2000. That's what it was like. Um, okay, uh, Ian, thank you for being a guest, man. You're awesome. Thank um, you for having me. What was uh, you guys got a new episode coming out on Sin Siblings or you got an old one you want to sort of talk about real quick? Well, uh, we just did Braveheart, our little deep dive into Braveheart where we go scene by scene, talk about uh, nice. all that. But new episodes every Friday. We're uh, about to release our top five superhero moments in film draft. Uh, it should be. It's a fun one for sure. Awesome. So it's coming this Friday, this Friday. All right, check it out. Uh, yeah. Sim siblings. It's a good um, and oh, what are we doing next week? It's my choice. I Tell just us. I just picked now. Uh, the Wolf of Snow Hollow by Jim Cummings. It's a horror comedy film uh, shot for about two million dollars. Just got put out on VOD. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of a different sort of film than we usually cover here. So I'm excited to do that. Ian, thank you. Chris, thanks. Uh, this has been Film Trace. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.